pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now turning over to Romans chapter 1, and just reading together briefly the words of Paul's great statement of his theme beginning in verse 16 and just briefly to the end of verse 18, which is our text for today. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Well, amen. We'll end our reading. We trust the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's do pause with the word open before us and unite our hearts together in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come again into your presence. We say another hallelujah that sinners here can sing the praises of the Lamb. A Lamb slain from the foundation of the world with that eternal purpose to save your people. And this Lamb of God that has come in time, He's taken into union with Himself our nature. John the Baptist could point to this one that the previous prophets could only hope to see and say, Behold the Lamb. And we today can read and sing of that Lamb who was slain and is risen again. This the first day of the week that we, since that point in time, have observed. The day of resurrection. And He's ascended to your right hand. And He has sent forth the word of His glorious gospel. And we here today are the recipients of that gracious message. And we pray that you'll help us both in proclaiming that message again and in hearing it again to take it up by your Spirit. And so, Lord, be near to us and grant us the things we have need of today. And we say and pray all these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I want to begin today by stating and repeating the obvious. There is no doubt or even the ability of questioning what the theme of Romans is. It is the gospel of Christ. 
Paul has clearly set before his readers in the verses that we considered last week and we read again today, that this gospel of Christ is his theme. It is that that he will consider. But even in his lengthy words of greeting, he let precious little pieces of that gospel shine through. In those words that were the from Paul section of his greeting, he strings together many key elements of the gospel. In that part of the greeting, which is the to the Romans section, again, he reminds his readers some of the main points of the gospel as he rehearses what they've experienced in the gospel, what is true of them now. And then last week we came and saw summarized in this thesis statement some of the main parts of what he will unfold in the remainder of the book. We looked last week and saw just from those two verses the gospel is a work of God's power. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And the gospel is entirely, from beginning to end, it is entirely a gospel of faith. It would not be a stretch. It would not be an inaccuracy just to try and make it convenient to say that the theme of this book is the theme that the Reformers rediscovered and proclaimed at the time of the Reformation. Justification is by faith alone. That is the truth that Paul is going to unfold. I want to pause here today and to draw some attention in the verses that we've been considering over these last couple of weeks to the logical connections to the, to the progression that Paul is putting before us. We were talking about three great statements that Paul makes as to the impact of the gospel upon him. And he said, first of all, I'm a debtor. And then he came and said, I'm ready. And beginning there, he starts to give reasons for each statement that he makes going forward in these verses. Why is it that Paul's ready? Or he's not ashamed. Well, I'm sorry, he does begin, why is he ready? He's ready because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why are you not ashamed of the gospel that so many would find shame in? That so many would find cause for offense? Well, he says, because the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone that believes. How is it? And there's his theme. There's his thesis statement. How is it that the gospel is this power of God? What is this gospel then about? Well, Paul is setting before them the good news of salvation. That's what this book is about. But there's another link in this chain that Paul's put before us. The gospel is good news. The gospel is salvation in Jesus Christ. The gospel is through faith alone. The Gospel shows us the power of God in the salvation of His people. Why is this so important? Why is Paul just putting a bright spotlight on this theme that is going to unfold through this book so consistently, so logically, so fully? Because there's a need. It's not too trite a thing to understand it if the gospel is good news 
To whom does this good news come? Well, it comes as we read. There's a universal preaching of the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. Because there's a universal need. Something is wrong in the world. And Paul's going to explain that as we come to see that by one man sin entered. And death by sin. I'm probably going to reference this a little later in the message today, but if you weren't with us yesterday for the creation seminar, I trust, I don't know that we'll have those online ourselves or not, but some really tremendous truth there. But the presence of death, the entrance of death into God's creation, the fall of man, and all of its implications and its results, the universal need of salvation. Now it's true if you look at the book and we've unfolded already something of its outline, there's, there are two major headings. And we see that as unfolded as chapter 5 makes it so clear as the two heads of mankind, Adam and the second Adam. And the first section is much shorter than the second section, but that shouldn't surprise us. We don't have a need, as it were, for strict parallelism in the, the length of coverage. The message of sin and condemnation and death can be covered very quickly. It's a very simple matter that happened in man's fall and his first transgression. But then that second major heading. That those who for every expectation, for every threatening and promise of that first covenant, death to the sinner, That would have been where the story ended. We can borrow from Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. But God. And when we come to the second major heading, it begins in chapter 3 verse 21. The righteousness of God is also revealed. And yet, it must be a much longer section Because there's there's an amazing, unexpected truth that is to be unfolded about this second man. Of his person and his work and the application of that to his believing people. But I say Paul can't bring us to that good news without reminding us of the bad news. Reminding us of our need And of course, that's where all real evangelism starts. Meeting the sinner at his point of need. And so Paul begins this first major section and brings us into the real meat of the epistle to the Romans in the words that open verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. In unrighteousness. I want today to look at just two major points. And I have a suspicion that actually we'll just look today at the first major point and come to the second point 
next Lord's day and the Lord's will. But this opening verse of this opening section speaks to us of the revelation of wrath. And then it speaks to us of the reason for wrath. So think with me firstly today, and again maybe our only thought that we complete today, the revelation of wrath. We have to come to be honest. This is a part of truth. This is a part of the doctrines of the gospel. This is a part of what we proclaim to the world that is an unwelcome message. There are even sections of the church throughout history that are uncomfortable with the message of wrath. That there's something just wrong, as it were, with a God who is a God of wrath. Can I interject to you something? I remember it vividly as it was put to us very pointedly and powerfully in seminary one day. It was one of the days where the lecture kind of drifted from the realm of lecture to the realm of sermon. But when men approach any of the parts of Scripture or their, their uh, suggestions with regard to the Gospel, with regard to truth, with regard to reality, with regard to the world as we see it, and they begin a statement something like this, I can't imagine a God who would such and such. What have you done? You've revealed to the one you're speaking to, that you are an idolater. Because you're saying, I'm the one that needs to judge who and what God is and should be and does. If God does something I don't think He should do, then, well, that's not really what God should be. They need to hear a little bit of Paul's exclamation in Romans 9. Who art thou that repliest against God? It's why it's significant that we read in our text, the wrath of God is revealed. Now he said in his thesis in the text we looked at last week that the righteousness of God, why is the, the gospel the power of God? How is it such a glorious, powerful truth, powerful activity of God? For therein, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. There's a revelation of God's righteousness in this gospel. And there's a power with which it is wrought among his people. But the first point is that God's wrath is revealed. We don't need to meet, wait until men meet and have a convention and reach the conclusion, well, God might, might could be angry with sin. Reach the conclusions that the fallen mind goes further with and claims rights that belong only to God. God's wrath is revealed. And I think it's important, although it is, can we say, delicate for us to consider the matter. There's some theologians and commentators and many good and reformed men in the mix that that speak of wrath with regard to God's judicial response to sin. And there's some that carry that correlation out, that death and punishment and the condemnation and all the impact of sin 
It's just a logical connection, the stuff that naturally, as it were, flows out of transgression. Sin issues and bad results. Well, that's true. You can see it true a hundred different ways. But there's more than that. This text speaks of an activity of God. It speaks of God personally responding to sin. It's hard for us, I think, to wrestle with the wrath of God because it is so often the case when we are angry, when wrath belongs to us, that it's mingled with sin. And we really have trouble because it's, it's such a rare thing in our experience. And let me back up. I think it can be part of our experience. There's such a thing as righteous indignation. Usually when we wrestle with anger, something's happened. The day's not going good. They didn't get my burger out the window fast enough when I went through the drive-thru, whatever. And we're kind of personally involved because it's inconvenienced us and we didn't like the way that person did something or whatever. And so our anger is usually mingled with sin. But there are times, and I think even then, our righteous anger is going to fall short of perfection. But when you think of crimes, I've thought of this much in recent years. You can read historically, I remember as a little boy, there were, there were certain names that were familiar because there were people, say in the last couple of centuries, that had committed just heinous, awful crimes. They were so unusual, they were so striking, that it, it was notable. Now we almost daily hear of similar and worse crimes. Things of such a nature, you don't even want to repeat them in a setting like this. But you think of the abuse, murders, dismemberments, a host of things that, again, we shudder to speak of. And for any godly person, for any person with any modicum of uprightness and morality, there's going to be a response of anger, of wrath against the person who perpetrates such atrocities. A righteous indignation. It's impossible to love good without hating evil. And so when we read of the wrath of God, let us understand He's not like us. I've started actually opening prayers, both personal and sometimes prayers with others, uh, with the phrase, Lord, we thank You that You're not like us. You know, he speaks through the prophets and speaks of a sinful people and says, you thought I was altogether such a one as yourselves. You can praise God every day, Christian, that God isn't like you. 
He's not like me. He's like himself. But God who is untainted by sin can't have any wrong motive, any unjust motive in his anger, is nonetheless righteously angry at sin and sinners. One of the trite phrases of evangelicalism the last many decades is God uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner. There's There's a modicum of truth there. But in some ways I think it seeks to ignore reality. It doesn't present the sinner with the reality that they're under God's wrath. God is angry with them. We can't go through an exhaustive list because frankly it would take us weeks. But I want you to think with me of the Scripture statements from beginning to end with regard to the fact of God's wrath. God has revealed to us the fact of His wrath. It's not the imagination of some bondage preacher, as it were. It's something God has revealed. He's revealed it in word, and He's revealed it in activity. And today, just to summarize some of these, if you think about even the text, God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7 and verse 11. There's a text perhaps I should have mentioned before heading the list of these others that's in Romans itself that underscores the fact that the wrath of God that is revealed and, and explained in these opening two and a half chapters is indeed personal. Because Paul speaks in Romans 2 verse 8 about those that are under his wrath as being subjects of indignation and wrath. He brings those together. The personal element of God's anger against sin, God's indignation directed toward the sinner. God is angry with the wicked every day. Deuteronomy chapter 32, a famous chapter that you will remember, well, as we mention something historically in a moment. God speaking to his people in those threatenings of the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, A fire is kindled in mine anger. Verse 22. But then down in the 35th verse, he underscores and says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. Many of you may recall that was the text for Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But here, the fierceness of that wrath, a fire is kindled in mine anger. You look there and certainly that's a key passage of Scripture. But the highlights 
Some of the most familiar passages of Scripture to us and to our ears. Psalm 90. You think of that psalm that opens with glorious thoughts and statements about the infinite nature of our God and His attributes. It's a psalm of Moses, so the earliest psalm in the Psalter. We read before perhaps the most familiar verse in that psalm, so teach us, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. The text that precedes that prayer, that request for such wisdom and grace, contains these words. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? If you think of the context of that psalm, most likely it comes near the end of the wilderness wandering. Moses, who has led the people from Egypt, the wonders of the Exodus, and actually we didn't pause to tarry, but some key texts in there with regard to God's wrath inflicted upon the Egyptians. We'll quote some reference to that in a moment from the 78th Psalm. The people were given and the spies went forth to spy out the land and come back and they give their evil report. And they say, we can't go in, we can't take it. You think even just of the folly of that? They've just seen the most powerful empire on the face of the earth defeated by the sheer hand and power of their God. And they go up by comparison to the petty tribes of Canaan and say, it can't be done. Well, Hebrews unfolds what's clear from the context all along. It's because of their unbelief. It's a wicked and an apostate generation that had seen the miracles of Egypt. And God pronounces a judgment upon them. None of that generation except two. The two spies that brought a good report and said, our God is able, let's go up and take the land that He's promised. Joshua and Caleb. Only they would survive of that generation. Every encampment in the 40 years of wilderness wanderings from that day was a graveyard. Death upon death upon death upon death till that generation is gone. Moses can speak in reflection in that psalm of some of the temporal manifestations of wrath in his own experience. And of course, the greater themes of God's eternal wrath. But who knoweth the power of thine anger? It's not merely here that we see it, but as we mentioned in the 78th Psalm, which is a psalm of, a lengthy psalm of traversing the history of Israel as we see so often these psalms are. They're one of those psalms of Asaph we've been looking at. But he speaks in verse 45 of the fierceness of his wrath, anger, and indignation. He speaks in the 50th verse of God making a way to his anger. Of God preparing and meeting it out. But you know, those were texts in that chronicle of the history that spoke about God's wrath against the Egyptians. You keep reading and you see Israel 
that had been the recipients of such protection and such blessing, and they enter into their own apostasy. They tempt God with their idols. And we read in the 62nd verse that He gave His people over also to the sword and was wroth with His inheritance. You turn the page from the psalm to the New Testament. You think in Matthew 3 of the preaching of John the Baptist, in many ways the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets, the one who had the privilege to be able to actually point his finger to the promise received. This Messiah is here. The promised one has come. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But what does he say when some of the Pharisees approach him to kind of investigate his preaching? See if they can put their ecclesiastical stamp of approval upon this prophet. He speaks boldly to them. And he speaks of them as a generation of vipers. And he says, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Here, the theme of wrath carries on. You think perhaps we'd come to the third chapter of John, which speaks so plainly about God so loved the world. Again, that wrong religious sentiment that somehow a God of love cannot be a God of wrath. Well, Christ speaks to Nicodemus of that great love of God. A love so great that He gave His only begotten Son for the salvation of His people. If I were to ask you today if you knew what the last phrase of John chapter 3 is, how many would you, of you would know? He speaks about those who have seen the Son, but those that don't know the Son, don't receive the Son. The last phrase of John 3 is, The wrath of God abideth on Him. God speaks of His wrath. We could carry on and Consider the statements of His wrath for the days to come. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells of a day, and of course this is eschatological wrath. This is final wrath. And it says He will come in flaming fire. There's that flame again that He mentioned in Deuteronomy 32 of a fire burning in His anger. It will be in flaming fire taking vengeance on those that know not God that Jesus returns to this earth. There's that twofold purpose of the day of the Lord. The blessing of His people. A people persecuted and under the wrath of sinners and under the wrath of the man of sin. That Jesus will appear and He'll recompense comfort and rest to His own people. And He'll recompense wrath to the persecutors of His people. To the deniers of His Christ. And of course you could turn the page to Revelation and see multiplied references to that wrath and even that sequence of the seven vials or bowls of His wrath that are outpoured in that day. 
I say God has revealed His wrath to us consistently throughout His Word just by the statements with regard to its reality. But God has also revealed His wrath by examples in Scripture. Again, we're scratching the surface, particularly with regard to the statements of His wrath. We just get a concordance and run through some of the terms. Wrath, wrath, indignation, anger. It's not some hidden thing. It's not something that we can just imagine isn't there. Actually, if you wanted to consider something of the seriousness with which God takes it, He doesn't leave it to merely the fiery prophets of the Old Testament and then the Peters and the Johns of the New Testament in 2 Peter 3 as we opened with our reading today and those many familiar statements of Revelation. But it's from the lips of Jesus that the fullest revelation of God's wrath, that the fullest teaching in Scripture of the place of eternal wrath is depicted. That lake of fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. But what are the examples of this The forerunners of this, if you will, that we see. It's true if you look in Scripture that wrath comes against sin and there quite often are temporal consequences to sin. Now we have to back up and put a major caveat here. In this fallen earth, we can't draw a direct line of connection between a calamity or say a sickness, or a disease, or or tornado, or a hurricane, to some particular sin. And the Lord gives us examples of that in Scripture. Notably John 9, the man born blind. The disciples come, and they say, who sinned? This guy or his parents that resulted directly in his being born blind? And Jesus says, neither. His blindness is not because of some sin of his or any sin of his parents. There's an overriding purpose for the glory of God because this is going to be one of the miracles I'm going to perform. It's going to be recorded in my word and read and known about for the rest of history. Of course, the ultimate cause of any disease, any infirmity, anything connected with death is that sin has entered this world. But again, this caveat, the direct line of connection, we can't make. That was the error of Job's friends. They said, well, from this truth and this truth and this truth, and Job's friends stated quite eloquently many truths. But they didn't get the whole picture. Because again, there's no direct line of connection between every suffering, every point of sorrow or problem in that person or their parents or whatever's particular sin. We know from reading the book of Job that the underlying purpose behind his sufferings wasn't his sin. It was his godliness. And that's one of the wonders of that tremendous book of Job. 
But so we have that caveat that we have to be aware of. But with the caveat understood. There are examples of wrath that precede that final day of the ultimate outpouring of God's wrath for eternity against sinners. If you think of the preeminent example, when Adam sinned, does God say that's okay? No problem? You just transgressed directly my command? That which I had said, this do and live. Do this and die. God casts Adam from the garden. He's barred from the tree of life. He has died that day. He's alienated from his God and there's the workings of death within his flesh from that day forward. You know, that's one of the mysteries that we wrestle with in our earthly existence, both for sinner and saint alike. Very often we have not experienced the ultimate fulfillment of our condition. The sinners that we meet day by day are dead in trespasses and sins. They are, in the truest sense, dead. They haven't received as of yet the full issue of death. Eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And of course, in the mercy of God, there is this day of salvation in which we live. But for the believer, we're justified. We're never going to be any point in eternity future more justified than we are today if we're a believer in Jesus Christ. That perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account and reckoned as ours. Period. It's a work Christ has done for us. But there's also work He's going to do and is doing in us. We're not yet glorified. So we haven't yet entered into the full experience of our position. Of what we have a title to in Christ. So when you look at the examples of wrath, and even God casting Adam from the garden, it's just the beginning of that unfolding of wrath. But I wanted to read from Peter this morning. Because Peter chooses to draw out and highlight two classic, if you will, examples of God pouring His wrath out. And strikingly, they both occur early in history and early in Scripture. The flood. The flood is not a story of a natural disaster. It's a story of God pouring His wrath out against a world that had so degraded itself into sin upon sin and sinning against light that he would not let it go on any farther. He intervened in judgment. He honored his promise. He protected Noah and his family 
that through the seed of the woman, that promised second man would still come. But he put on display for the rest of history to see and know God isn't messing around. He is angry against sin. If you weren't with us yesterday, the creation seminar was really excellent. The second one where he dealt with dinosaurs was, I thought, particularly helpful and interesting. There were pieces of science that were stunning. He talked a little bit about uh, soft tissue in the dinosaur fossils. I'm getting about six steps out of my zone here. But if I am understanding at least correctly that some of the larger bones that on the inside of the bones, like where the marrow was and so forth, they found soft tissue. They can get it under the microscopes. They can see red blood cells. And they were playing with it and it was actually still pliable. And some of these evolutionary scientists were stunned. Something that's 89 million years old shouldn't do that. It's actually scientifically impossible to do that. So what do they do? Well, they don't abandon their religion of millions of years. They say, let's abandon the science. We don't understand how it can happen, but there it is. Something that's 98 million years old can do that. Well, that should probably be an illustration for next week's text, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But the flood, the sudden visitation of God's wrath. He showed another slide of a fossil. And he kind of made the humorous comment, this was a female dinosaur. And you're looking at some bones there. Yeah, and you know that how? And he got his laser pointer and said, because this fossil is in the midst of giving birth. Here's the baby. I just thought of that last night and this morning. You know, animals get afraid. Here's a dinosaur. Kind of far along in its pregnancy. And the whole earth is starting to explode. It's given birth, running for its life. And the two other dinosaurs that were fossilized in the midst of fighting each other. That kind of had to happen quickly. Something had to bury those animals in the process. Well, again, these perhaps are pieces of evidence and debate for Next week's theme of suppressing truth. But yet the flood itself. What an illustration, what an example to those that should after live ungodly. Of course, those are the words that Peter uses with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. The fire of heaven coming upon those cities that were so given over to wickedness. Romans 1 actually will come to deal in some detail with the sins that are given the names of Sodom. But God's 
judgment upon those cities. Even the temporal manifestation of judgment as a harbinger of wrath to come. We could see also illustrations of God's wrath in the history of Israel. Philistines taking over Shiloh. The Babylonians destroying Jerusalem. God graciously gives the remnant to return. They rebuild. God honors His promise and sends Jesus. And they refuse Him. And He sends the Romans to bring an even more devastating impact upon the city. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven by word, by historic example. It is not something that some cruel theologian in a medieval watchtower thought up as a means of scaring people. It's a simple reality. It gives us the very simple answer to the problems that we see in the world. For any honest observer, it's clear to see something is wrong. Because man in his sin has brought upon this creation the wrath of God. Paul tells the Corinthians, What is true of each of us as a believer. That we were at one time children of wrath. Even as others. The glorious good news is that God provides escape from wrath. That's what the greater part of this book of Romans is about. But we can't underscore, as it were, the good news without honestly facing the bad news. And something that to me is, well, quite simple, and it should be quite obvious, but the rebellious heart doesn't often even want to take in what's simple and what's obvious. The religious rebel wants to somehow wiggle out from under the truth of the wrath of God. Tries to save God's reputation even by saying, oh, He's not really like that. No, no. Why is God angry? Because of sin. And we could and should rightly understand that sin is a direct affront against God by His creatures. It is a direct insult to His holiness, to His rights and privileges, if you will, as the Creator of all things, the Giver of life. But think of it in this way. Those people that want to save God's reputation, not let Him be as harsh as it might seem if we admit that He has wrath against sin. What is sin? 
We'll read in some of the, the key, most important texts in this book. For as by one man, sin entered. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. For they all have sinned. God is angry at what has hurt us. What folly to say, I wish God weren't like that. God is angry at what introduced death to His creation. Why would we fight against that truth about our gracious and good God? You see, when you wrestle with that truth, when you want to wiggle out from under it, when you want to maybe make an excuse for keeping on sinning, And you're saying, I'm content with what brings death. God says, no, I'm angry at what brings death. Paul has to open this glorious book of the good news of the Gospel with the sobering but ever-present truth that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask that You would help us in this day. We have looked at basic truth. And yet one that almost on every hand is assailed. Lord, we who were indeed children of wrath, even as others, find great cause to sing Your praises because You have found an answer. You found a ransom to bring us out from under wrath and into Your glorious, happy presence. Lord, write these things on our hearts. Convince us of the seriousness and even the preciousness of them. And we pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.